because your first obligation is to deliver fantastic content to your attendees. And then, you know, the sales ought to come out of that naturally. You are listening to Amplify Your Success Podcast, episode 366. And today you're going to discover what it takes to entice your audience to buy before you ever leave the stage. You ready for this? Let's get started. Welcome to the Amplify Your Success Podcast. Get ready to ramp up your revenue, amplify your impact, and make your mark in the world. This is the show for experts, thought leaders, and service professionals who want to shatter their limits and achieve that next level. You're going to find out from other experts and influencers how they made it. Now, let's get Amplified. Hey there, inspired entrepreneurs and business leaders. It's your host, Melanie Benson, authority amplifier and possibility igniter for expert-based entrepreneurs. And today I've got a guest joining us who's going to share what it takes to get your audience engaged and ready to buy when you're on stage. Now, speaking on the stage or sharing your message from a podcast or virtual summit Wherever there is a microphone, it's one of my favorite ways to attract and what I call pre-enroll your best clients. Oftentimes, these are clients that are willing to invest four and five figures to work with you. And I get asked all the time, Melanie, um, I've been trying this. It's not working for me. What am I doing wrong? Well, that's where my scorecard comes in handy. There are 17 really super common mistakes that expert-based entrepreneurs make when they are behind the microphone that ends up costing them the lead and the client. And I'm going to unpack all 17 of those mistakes for you, plus give you a little scorecard so you can rate yourself on how well you're doing. Then I'm going to show you what to do that works better. So head over to melaniebenson.com forward slash scorecard and you can download this resource absolutely free as my gift to you. Again, go to melaniebenson.com forward slash scorecard. Now let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, Amplifiers. I've got a guest today who is what I would consider the OG of speakers, and he is a veteran that just has so much experience Get a pen and paper out. Today is a note-taking day. You do not want to listen to this without consuming every little nugget of wisdom my friend here has to share with you. Let me introduce you to Brett Widgeway, who is going to talk to us about the five keys that get your audience to buy before you leave the stage. Now, let me give you a little background on Brett before we bring him on. He is a 25-year veteran of the speaking industry. He got his start managing the back end of the room sales table at internet marketing conferences way back in 1999. And over the course of the next 15 years, managed sales at around 150 different events. Wow, that's huge. During that time, he witnessed a couple thousand different speakers in person. And in 2003, which is when I got to know him, he founded Speaker Fulfillment Services, a company that worked with speakers, authors, and information marketers, including people like Russell Brunson, John Asaroff, Suzanne Evans, and me, (laughs) although I was probably small potatoes compared to everyone else. And he has this unique behind the scenes perspective that enabled him to see what the common attributes are of speakers who do well 
and what the common attributes are of speakers who fail. So Brett, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'm so excited to be with you, Melanie. I've seen some interesting things, certainly in my career in the back of the room, and hopefully we'll be able to share a few little tidbits and lessons today that will help some of your listeners maybe not make some of those same mistakes that others have made in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And I think there's so much advantage or such a great advantage, maybe that's better grammar, (laughs) to you know, learn from the lessons of those that came before us that have studied what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, if we can just put even one idea into action that saves us from, you know, bombing on stage. Uh, I've certainly had my fair share of bombing on stages and all of the stages I've been on in my 23 years. So um, it would, it's just, I think, super helpful. So Let's talk a little bit about what we're what we mean by selling from stage. I just want to with so many different ways speakers, you know, I talk about being a guest expert. There's also like live event speaking. Like what are we talking about speaking to sell from stage? What does that model look like? Yeah, certainly in my mind, Melanie, there there's three primary types of speakers. Now one could elaborate here, there's a few more, but I mean the main three are keynote speakers, which most people are familiar with, pay to fee to go in and speak to a corporation or an association and deliver content. The second is what I call the business builder speaker. So then maybe they're just a you know financial planner, somebody like that who's speaking to local rotary clubs or other local organizations to share their expertise so that they would be recognized as the expert in their niche. So when somebody has a need for their type of product or service, they're who they reach out to. And the third, which you're alluding to, is what I call the platform seller. And that's the person who's going to deliver content from the stage and then make an offer for some type of continuing education at the end. Could be a coaching program, a mastermind, a webinar series, I mean, whatever. But it's a person who is directly selling from the stage. And in the speaking industry, the platform seller only makes money if they sell. They're not paid a fee to go and speak. So they're spending their own nickel to go to an event, their own hotel, airline cost, et cetera, with the hope that they'll resonate with that audience and, and sell something from the platform. And I got to tell you, Melanie, that you better have a high ticket item if you're going to sell from the platform in, in the internet and information marketing spaces because an event promoter does not want to bring you to their platform if you're going to offer a, a $47 product or whatever. They want something that's a couple thousand dollars or more so that when they do that fi- typical 50-50 split between the event promoter and you as a speaker, there's enough money in it to make it worth their while. Yeah, well said. And and you got to be good at it. You know, you've, you've got to have a good track record of being able to enroll people from the stage. So this is very timely for our amplifiers who they're aspiring to be able to attract more paying clients from their stage presence and from, sell, you know, educating from the stage. So this is very uh, perfect timing. So. I think there's some things that a speaker or an entrepreneur should do before they even accept the invitation to speak at an event and sell from the stage. (laughs) Um, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on what are some things that somebody should do to, you know, before they say yes or before they get to the event that'll help increase their chances of sales from the stage. Yes, certainly there are some critical things that you need to do as a speaker. And what it boils down to, Melanie, is doing your homework. And you need to do your homework from more than one perspective. 
The first perspective is that who's in the audience? Are they my target market? Are they the people that my message message will resonate with so that when I want to offer something from the platform, they're more likely to buy? And now early on in your speaking career, you may want to do more speaking engagements than you would normally accept once you're you know proven or whatever, because you need the experience of speaking from the stage and getting more comfortable with your content. But eventually you're going to have to pick and choose where you want to speak. And it is super critical to make sure that that audience is the right fit for you. What are their demographics? Are they men? Are they women? What's their education background? Do they pay to come to the event? Or is there somebody paying for them to come to the event, like a corporation or whatever? I mean, there are so many things that you've got to look at from a demographic standpoint to determine if that audience is the right fit for you. And it, it may well be that it's not the right fit for you. Now, there may be other reasons that you still want to speak to that audience. But if you want to sell effectively, you got to make sure that it's an audience whose message your message is going to resonate with. In addition to who is in the audience, you also have to look at who is also on that platform with you. And let me tell you a story, Melly. I was at an event a few years ago. It was an internet marketing super conference out in Vegas. And for whatever reason, the event promoter was all about getting as many names on the stage as possible. Well, as it turned out, this event promoter had three separate speakers all on the subject of copywriting. Hmm. Now, while copywriting is a very important subject, by the time they got to that third speaker on the same subject, the audience was like, been there, heard that, tuned out. And his chances of selling anything from that platform was about zero. Because he, he didn't do his homework ahead of time and figure out who else was speaking there and what are they speaking on. And if he found out he was going to be third in line on the same subject, well, he either should have come up with a different subject that might fit with that audience or passed on the event altogether because he was spending you know, a couple thousand dollars or more to get to the event. And then he had no chances for success because he was the third speaker on the same topic. So, again, you got to look at it from the demographics of the audience perspective, and you got to look at it from who else is sharing that stage with you perspective. Yeah, I would agree. I also do one more. Do you mind if I share one of my tips oh. as we're going through this? <laughs> yeah, no, um, not at all. I do both of those things because I've been in those situations where uh, whether I'm a paid speaker or a I'm selling from the stage or just collecting, you know, connections, whatever that is, like I or business development, as you called it, like I definitely want that diversity of education. But I've also learned to ask like how they plan to fill the event. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think sometimes people uh, imagine they're going to have this really big event, but they're only able to get a few people in the room. And so I like to also understand what their their uh, butts and seat model is, as we call it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly it's important to ask, have they done the event before? And what are, you know, what kind of numbers have they been able to draw into their event in the past? And also, when we're talking about the other speakers at the event, you know, ask the event promoter, well, what kind of offers have worked with your audience in the past? What price points? what type of teaching model, whether it's masterminds or coaching or whatever, have best worked so that you have a chance to craft your offer to be in line with what's worked with that particular promoter's audience in the past. So yeah, I, I, I fully agree with you, Melanie. I mean, it's one of those things where I have found, and you probably agree with this, I'm going to guess, but you know, event promoters, I don't want to say they're, they're liars, Melanie, but I want to say they're overly optimistic on how many people they can really <laughs> attract to an event. So when they give you a number, 
you know, I typically say, all right, well, they say 100, well, that means there's going to be maybe 25 people in the room. I mean, I take a quarter of what they say as probably what the real audience is going to be. And so you need to factor what the realities probably are of an event in terms of the audience size, determine if you want to be on that stage. Mm-hmm. Well said. I like your overly optimistic framework. <laughs> <laughs> that is a kind way to <laughs> say it. And again, like I think what we're going to talk about here today, Brett, whether you are wanting to be the speaker on the stage or perhaps you are actually organizing an event with speakers, I think this is really valuable insight for both sides of the uh, the stage there. So I, I'm just occurring to me as we're talking, you're actually giving speaker uh, bookers and people who uh, run events a really great training on what not to do as well. Well, so many promoters, again, I mentioned the example, Melanie, where it was all about getting as many names on the stage as possible. Mm-hmm. And there was no real thought given to developing a curriculum that made sense. So how am I going to fit speakers together on what topics to make a, a true learning experience for my attendees because your first obligation is to deliver fantastic content to your attendees. And then, you know, the sales ought to come out of that naturally, but only from delivering solid content first and foremost. Yeah, agreed. And, and I, I don't know, like, I think we, you and I are OG in this in a lot of ways. And we, we saw a whole life cycle of going through like, you know, uh, events where, you're just cramming speakers on a stage to help like entice people into the room. And I think our audience has become very sophisticated and they know that's not really going to serve them either. So I think we've got a community of people who are really craving more of an experience at events rather than just, you know, a fire hose of knowledge nonstop at a three-day event. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, one of the things I tend to battle with is trying to overteach Melanie. And you've got to, mm. you know, you've got to be very selective on your speaker lineup about what they're going to teach your audience. Because you know, what do they say? The mind can only endure or mind, mind can only absorb what the butt can endure or whatever. That's a, and and that's so you've got you to limit what you're feeding to your audience so that they can truly get the most benefit from their experience with you. And if you have speaker after speaker and they're duplicating content and they're just just pitch after pitch after pitch after pitch and you're not feeling like you're getting the value from a content perspective, then it gets planted in the minds of the attendees pretty quickly. Oh, this is just a pitch fest or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's a very dangerous moniker to be tied with as an event promoter. It's hard to overcome. So how are you going to balance out content versus the pitches that need to be there to make it profitable for you to host as an event promoter, but to avoid that negative pitch fest tab? Yeah, well said. That's perfect. I want to talk a little bit about something you've mentioned. I've heard you uh, talk about it on other platforms and you've shared tips about this. Like you talk about it controlling your speaking environment. What do you mean by that? And how does somebody go about doing that? You know, if you're wanting to have success, Melanie, selling from the platform, there are so many little things that can basically trip you up. And let's start, you know, let's just start with a very basic one. And that's, you know, every time you're sitting in an event and an audience, and maybe you're up on stage and somebody comes in the back door of the conference room, and then bam, you hear that door shut. Well, everybody turns to look at who's walked into the room and all that, and they've lost their focus on you as the speaker. So 
that's an environmental factor that you do have the ability to control. And you do that simply by either, you know, taping in the push bar on the door so it doesn't click so loudly, or you sling a towel over the top of the door to soften the cushion or whatever. And then you also want to make sure that you route your event traffic into a given set of doors to get into your conference room so that they're not coming in from all angles and distracting people coming in this side or whatever. So controlling that access and making sure that those doors aren't banking seems like a minor thing. But again, any little thing that distracts that audience from your message and their focus on you on the stage is going to probably detract from your ability to resonate with them and to sell effectively from the platform. But, you know, there's in this industry, and you're familiar with the Melanie, what we call the hit and run speaker, you know, the person who shows up at the last minute before their scheduled time slot. And so that the audio crew of the event is scrambling to get them mic'd up and on the stage and they get up on stage and they don't know if there's any dead spots or areas to avoid because in that danger zone, as we say, the, you know, the microphone will screech or whatever. And they're out of the room as soon as they're, event or their talk is over and so it's one of those things where you have control over this you don't have to put the event promoter in a panic and you know i would tell you this from the standpoint of a virtual event or being a podcast guest too i mean i make it a rule i'm on 10 minutes early before any podcast appearance so that the host knows i'm there and they don't have to well is he going to show up or not show up because you don't need to put that pressure on the host. So if you're coming in to speak at a live conference and you wait till the last minute to swoop in with well, event promoters, oh my gosh, what am I going to do and if he doesn't show up? And you make them nervous that it doesn't need to be there. So be responsive to your host and show up early, control your entrance and, and be there so that they know that you're there to deliver your best to their audience. I mean, the other things that you have control, I mean, you may not have control over the room temperature or whatever, but you do have control over things like your introduction. And so you should definitely prepare an introduction in advance to give to the MC or whoever's going to be introducing you. Now, will they read it 100% of the time the way you wrote it? Hell no. I mean, that's, that's life or whatever. But if you just leave it up to them to stumble around or whatever, then you don't know what you're going to get whatsoever. Now, I know some speakers, Melanie, have gone to video introduction for themselves. And you have to decide whether that's right for you or not. But any introduction, in my opinion, and I would be interested in your take on this, certainly, is you know, it should be no longer than two to three minutes at the most. I mean, people are not interested in your life story or whatever. They want to know what's in it for them. And so you do have control over the introduction that is used for you. Now, what, what's, what's your ideal length of an introduction, Melanie? Mm. Well, as you're talking about that, I'm having a memory of a best practice I learned where I would print my intro in big text, I'd put it in one of those little plastic sleeves, and I would make sure I had it on my in my hands when I greeted the event host or the MC. And I was remembering a time when the uh, person who introduced me, uh, who is a fr- good friend of mine, he always liked to tell the story about me that because of the kind of coaching I do, he was never sure if he wanted to thank me or hang up on me. And I'm like, dude, do not put that in my introduction. You're <laughs> you're like giving people this negative connotation of me because that's your experience. So it was just funny how you were talking about you can control it and hopefully you can, but sometimes you have people who like to free will it and you, you have to know how to navigate those moments. I always used to to roll into a funny joke about it as I would take the stage and make everybody laugh and break that 
that um, disconnecting energy that felt like for me. But, um, you know, one of the best intro, I like being brought up on stage with music. I like people getting people in the energy right away and um, like asking a question before they introduce me. So I actually have that written in my official intro from stage. But one of the best ones, and I'm sure you saw this at some point, was Alex Mendozian, who, if you're not familiar and you're listening in, Alex Mendozian is a very well-known marketer in our space. Um, He used to have this really short video. It was so powerful and so energizing and so well done. And it just got everybody in this really awesome state before he took the stage. Do you remember ever seeing Alex's uh, video intro? Yeah, I've seen Alex speak many times, and he is a a master of the craft, certainly. Yes, he is, yeah. So I want to go just a little bit deeper into this idea of controlling your speaking environment, because where, and and I love that you're talking about hit-and-run speakers, because I always avoided bringing those kinds of people into my rooms when I organized events. I think being a source of peace and power for your your speaker uh, host <laughs> or your podcast host, whatever that is, is a very valuable thing to do rather than being a source of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fan of communicating with them before you get there, asking lots of great questions about, you know, like what the events can be like. And then I always developed a best practice of walking the room before the event kicked off. So I knew what I was dealing with and looking for those little tricks that you were talking about and, you know, like asking them, when do you want me to be here to get mic'd up? So I just had a little bit different approach to doing that because I didn't like the the anxiety of kind of walking right in at the end. But um, is there any best practices that you've seen that really work for people or for yourself that, we want these people to get that best experience when they get on stage. So what are the best practices that they need to be adopting? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, the stories that you're going to tell are critical to your success from the stage. I mean, that's what's going to build the rapport and all that. So you've got to figure out what stories are going to best resonate with your audience and figure out how you're going to incorporate those into your overall talk to help you know, build rapport. And I will tell you what I did, Melanie. When I spoke from the stage the first few times, as I mentioned or you mentioned earlier, got my start in the back of the room. So I was happy being the back of the room guy forever. And that was kind of my shtick or whatever. But eventually I decided, you know, you know, Brett, you need to get up in front of the room too and, and share some of what you've learned along the way. And so I would get up on stage and I would ask everybody to stand up and I'd ask them to turn around and face to the back of the room. And I, you know, I would just say, you know, I got my start in the back room. I'm, I'm a lot more used to staring at the back of your head than the front of you. So <laughs> we may just do the whole presentation this way. And, you know, got a little chuckle, relaxed the audience, and then, you know, got it started to get into the content. So, I mean, stories are, are critical to your thing. I think another thing that in terms of controlling the environment that I didn't touch on is, you know, the whole PowerPoint issue that, you know, go over, should you, shouldn't you? I mean, I've seen so many speakers come in with a presentation and they find out that the audio crew is using a Mac and they did it on a PC or they're a PC and a Mac or whatever, and they, they can't even load their presentation up properly to, to have for them. So I tend to not use PowerPoints these days when I speak honestly, but again, you got to decide what's right for you. Um, in terms of additional best practices, be early, don't be a prima donna. Uh, I mean, I've seen speakers that insisted that they 
had to have only green M&Ms on the stage. Now, maybe it was a test of the crew to see if they could really follow instructions. I don't know, but that seems a little ridiculous to me. I mean, people that come into the event, and they, you know, the lady that's got to have a certain type of bottled water chilled to exactly 57.6 degrees, or the people that show up with their whole entourage and the thing, expect them to get in for free and prime seating in the front of the room. I mean, if you get known as a prima donna in this space, even though you may be a good speaker, you're probably not going to be welcome back on very many stages because you're just a pain in the ass to deal with for the event promoter. And I'm sure you've seen them too, Melanie. <laughs> oh, yes. I've got stories and I know you've got stories, but we're not going to divulge any names or no names. Uh, no, names no. <laughs> but, you know, I want to like just dig a little deeper into something that I know the importance of, and I'm I'm pretty sure you do too. And that is you alluded to this with like telling stories and what's starting to happen when you take the stage, but how important is the structure and like what you teach from the stage? Well, we talked, Melanie, about how first and foremost, it needs to be about delivering great content to your audience. And I honestly think that a good 80, 85% of the time you have on stage should be delivering that content. Only in the last 15, 10, 15 minutes should be slight, should you be sliding into your pitch or your clothes or whatever. And it, and it needs to be a almost seamless transition between the content portion and the pitch portion. And it's not an easy craft to master. I mean, I will profess that I probably haven't mastered that whatsoever yet, but I haven't done a lot of platform selling in my time. I'm sure you've done much more than I have. Uh, but again, it needs to be seamless because if you you hear that speaker suddenly, they start to talk a lot faster and you tell the nervousness in their voice and they're uncomfortable with the whole idea of a picture or whatever because they feel like it's sleazy or whatever. It, it's, it's a hard thing to overcome. And the fact of the matter is that if you have something that will truly benefit the audience and you don't offer up that continuing education, then you're really doing a disservice to them by not giving them that opportunity. And that's that's a frame of mind, in my opinion, you need to come in with that I have something valuable to share. And if I don't talk about it, then I'm cheating people out on what could truly help them out. Yeah. So that, that, that's my take on that. I don't know. What do you think about that, Melanie? Yeah, you know, see, it's been, I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've done on stage selling. Um, I'm actually getting ready to go to my first event where I'm actually speaking from the stage um, in probably four years, maybe uh, yeah. since before COVID. Uh, so I'll be leaving next week for that. And as you're talking, I'm like, oh, yeah, check, check, check. I got to do all these things. But I, I think there's really three things that make or break what happens once you take the stage. And one of them is your energy is like holding the energy and really like standing in your confidence, because when people aren't confident, you tend to kind of speak in a way that's hard to connect with in the audience, especially if there's multiple speakers and you, you know, you, you don't want to get lost in a sea yeah. of like, you know, people are like, okay, this is boring. I'm out. You want to really like pull people in. Um, the second one, and you were alluding to this a little bit is that ability to transition from teaching to the offer. That is such an important space in the conversation because the moment you go into the 
you know, outlining what it is that they can do to, as you call it, to continue the education with you. Many people get nervous and they change their mm -hmm. tone and their cadence changes and they speed up or they, you know, they start stumbling and like the audience feels it. You know, that was a big thing I had to work on a lot, Brett. I know a lot of people do is like really being able to transition from just sharing your heart and like what works and really powerful stories into something that's a little more maybe mechanical. So those are a couple of the big ones for me. And honestly, I always found the third one was not being that hit and run speaker and really connecting with people in the room. You know, like hopefully you're going into a break and you're not like back to back. And that's one of the things that speaker bookers and event hosts really need to understand is like creating space for people to go to the back of the room and explore the offer, but don't disappear. Most of the people that buy are going to have a few questions and they want to connect with you and make sure you're real once you leave that stage. Because anybody can deliver a pre-designed Converse, you know, like a pre-designed yeah. presentation, but who you're being with them when you get off that stage that's a really key ingredient to me. Yeah, well, I don't I know. What are your thoughts? I think it's important, Melanie, to interact with that audience as much as possible before and after you're mm -hmm. on the stage. I mean, if it's a multi-day event, a three-day event, if you can, if at all possible, get there, uh, you know, and, and participate in the whole thing, then you'll have time to, you know, break bread with people and share a drink at the bar and they start to build some of that know, like, and trust that's so critical so that when you get up on that stage, they say, hey, I know him. He's, you know, and he's a nice guy. I should really listen to what he has to say. But if if you lose that opportunity, if you're hit and run, I mean, we, we talked about controlling your introduction, Melody, but I think it's also important to control as much as possible how they close you out as a speaker. Are you closing yourself out? Are you going to a break, as you mentioned? Are you going to lunch? I mean, I was in an event a few years ago where speaker did a fantastic presentation, made a good offer, solid offer. And then the event MC grabbed the mic and said, all right, let's go do it. Let's, we're going to do a meditation now. When people should have been going to the sales table and encouraging that, he was trying to take them into a state of transcendental meditation instead. Well, mm -hmm. he killed that speaker's sales because the speaker did, didn't control or attempt to control how he was closed out after his talk. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That Those are the little things that you learn when you've done this multiple times and you went, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what works better, right? And so you learn these things. And so, Brad, I think is one of the great opportunities we have here is like we get to learn from somebody who's, you know, been on both sides of the stage. You've been in all spaces in the room and you've really like have a track record of seeing what's working when you're in that situation where you get to make a sale from the stage. Let's just cover one thing that like can destroy your success. Something that maybe is a mistake that you want to avoid, or you've seen people like kind of like they didn't get to control the room in the right way, or the you know, like maybe they made a mistake from stage. Like, what's something that you think people need to avoid at all costs? Well, I think it's so critical to remember that your talk essentially begins when you walk in the front door of that venue. I mean, there's going to be attendees there, they're going to see you. If they see you're rude to a clerk at the desk, well, that plants a seed in their mind and probably kills your chances for success on the stage. If they hear you berating your crew backstage, which I have heard before, and then you get out on stage and you try to you know try to be nicey nicey after blasting your crew in public, then you create a disconnect and your message is not going to resonate. 
So remember that your time begins not when you hit that stage, it's when you walk in the front door of that venue until the time you exit that venue. Hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one, and this may be controversial. You may see this a little bit differently, but I always like to avoid being the speaker over the lunch or anything or like a happy hour or some kind of networking because there's so much conversation and activity happening and it's a very popular speaker spot to sell but i watch people struggle to control the environment as you call it and not necessarily get the impact they're hoping for because they're competing against food and conversation yeah. and probably people who've been bored sitting in a room listening to a lot of uh, stuff come at them so that's one of my kind of avoid this mistake you know, rally for the spot that's going to give you undivided attention. So that would be yes. one of mine. Yes, certainly as a beginning speaker, you're going to have to pay your dues. You're not going to get the optimal time slots in which to deliver your talk. I mean, you're going to get the early morning slots. Or you're going to get the right after lunch slots when people are dozing off or whatever. And it's just part of the game. You Again, you're going to have to pay your dues. Now, eventually, once you've proven yourself that you can close from the stage and they see that you're delivering that great content and all that, then you'll have more input with the event promoters as to what time slot you're going to receive for your talk. But out of the gate, you know, you have probably little chance to control that, but it is what it is. Yeah, that's a good distinction. I'm glad you brought up that paying the dues piece because we do need to build a track record and it's kind of hard to negotiate for top spots if your event host doesn't really know how you perform. So well said. Uh, Brett, as our amplifiers are getting very excited and inspired about the idea that they could potentially be selling from the stage as part of their revenue model and their client attraction, what is a resource that you want to make sure our audience knows about today? Yeah, I actually got a couple of different things, Melanie. One is, a, is a, a free report called Three Key Things Entrepreneurs Must Master to Build a Profitable Speaking Business. And you can find that at brettridgeway.com. And I'm sure Melanie will have that in the show notes down below. I will. And then I also have a new book coming out on Amazon next month called How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business, where I share some of the war stories from the back room and all that. And it, it's about building a, a speaking business, not just how to be more effective talking from the stage or whatever. And so you might, you can also find that at brettridgeway.com, but How to Build a Profitable Speaking Business is book number eight. Oh my gosh, you are the quintessential author, aren't you? <laughs> well, it's great to have books in the back of the room too. So if you don't have other product, having books is a really powerful way to keep the education and the conversation going with clients uh, to uh, supplement not having other product right now. Yeah, it's a good first step. But as we talked about before, Melanie, event promoters eventually are going to want you to have those high ticket items yes. where there's, there's more money in it for all involved. Yep, totally agree. So Brett, this is the time in our conversation where I've got a couple fun questions to ask you. And I, having known uh -oh. you as long as I have, I'm very curious to hear how you answer. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, far so, away. All right. What is the boldest thing you've done that ended up amplifying the success of your business? Boldest thing. All right. So several years ago, came out with a new book, Melanie, called Mistakes Authors Make, and decided that we were going to try to make it a number one bestseller at a live event. So it was either going to fall flat on its face and be a major embarrassment, or it was going to succeed. Well, fortunately, because 
of the relationships I had established in the industry over the past 15 years or whatever, they, you know, people were willing to step up and, and help to promote and the audience in the, at the event was excited about being able to participate too. So we were successful, but we were truly going out on a limb and this was either going to be a miserable failure in front of the world or it was going to succeed. So stepping outside that comfort zone was something that we did and fortunately it worked. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it worked. And I love that you brought through being willing to step outside your comfort zone. And I, I always ask this question, Brett, because I think the most successful people in business have to do some pretty bold things. They have to shake things up. They have to stretch. And I think it's incentive and it's it's actually clarifying. You don't get to the top of your game. You don't get to a successful impact and income by playing it safe. So thank you for sharing that great uh, story and example. All right, last question. Is there one thing that you wish you would have done sooner because now you know how impactful it was to your business? Well, the whole speaking thing, honestly, Melanie. Mm -hmm. Again, I was happy being the back of the room guy for so many years. And I'm, I'm kind of an introvert naturally or whatever. So it was another stepping outside my comfort zone to get up in front of the room. Yeah. So I started doing that about 10 years ago and I enjoy it now. And you definitely get more comfortable with it over time. But Honestly, what I'm doing now, I should have been doing 10 years ago. And that, you know, sharing what I've learned in the industry with others where, you know, I wasn't doing that before. So step outside that comfort zone. I, I would say find a mentor, you know, like Melanie or somebody that can show you the path because they've been down it before you. You've got to invest the time and the money into finding a mentor. Otherwise, the School of Hard Docs carries some very hard lessons, let's just say. Yes, the cost then, of you know, not. <laughs> you know, final final word of wisdom, I guess, Melanie, would be your greatest success as a speaker and whatever you choose to pursue is going to be built on the relationships that you establish in your industry. In my opinion, relationships are your number one business asset and they need to be nurtured carefully. I mean, you need to approach it from a what can I do for you standpoint first, but it will come back to you tenfold over time if you truly go in with that giving attitude, but relationships are critical. Speaker Fulfillment Services became a multi-million dollar company because of relationships. Mm, well said, and what a powerful concept to end on. Thank you so much, Brett. And I hope as you're listening in today, you'll go and get Brett's resource. Uh, we'll link it up in the show notes for you. And let us know if you're going to take this step into selling from the stage. It is a very powerful way to build your authority, but it's a great win-win strategy, win-win-win strategy to help more of your ideal clients as well as bring some revenue in the door. So thank you, Brett, for bringing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me share some of my wisdom, Melanie. Thanks for tuning in today, Amplifier. Be sure to join us right now in the Amplify Your Authority community at authorityamplifiers.com and I'll share my seven proven tips to be a highly paid expert that stands out in a crowded market. Plus, we're going to keep this conversation going and I want to hear from you how you're going to amplify your authority and make a greater impact. Before you go, please take a minute to give our show and our guests some love over on your favorite podcasting platform. Subscribe, rate, and review. Leave your full name and I'll spotlight you and your authority on social media. <laughs>